traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. some key pieces of iconography related to the Twilight Zone, certain images and they remind us of the show when we see them. And as season three begins, we see some more of that being introduced. In previous versions of the opening credits, we see a kind of mist or cloud parting effect in front of us that reveals this blank landscape with stones coming up out of the earth casting shadows on it. Then it goes on to what appears to be a cave which the camera then pans up from to a black sky with twinkling stars and it's this that the series has kept all the way throughout. Then in another version of the opening credits we've seen again that cloud parting effect but as it does, a black line starts to creep across from the right of the screen. Then as the sun sets, we come again to our dark sky with bright stars. But for both of these versions, we have this kind of spiky white font spelling out the Twilight Zone. In season three, another part of Twilight Zone iconography enters the opening credits. Instead of the clouds parting, we open on the spinning black and white spiral which disappears into the black sky. And when you look at it, it almost looks like it's a kind of portal going through space. And if you end up going down that portal, maybe you'll end up in a twilight zone. Also what's new is the new clean white lettering that spell out the words the twilight zone. I imagine at that time that looked so very modern. And then the letters shatter as the credits come to an end. Now I do prefer the season one and two lettering. I think that's what has endured. That's what always reminds us of the Twilight Zone, something along those lines. But I do like this shattering effect too. So that's what's new so far in season three. But what comes next is an episode with a message that seems to be classic rod sailing, but let's find out if it actually is when we look at tonight's episode two. This is a jungle, a monument built by nature honoring disuse, commemorating a few years of nature being left to its own devices. But it's another kind of jungle, the kind that comes in the aftermath of man's battles against himself. Hardly an important battle, not a Gettysburg or a Marne or an Iwo Jima. More like one insignificant corner patch in the crazy quilt of combat. But it was enough to end the existence of this little city. It's been five years since a human being walked these streets. This is the first day of the sixth year, as man used to measure time. First broadcast on the 15th of September 1961. Written by Montgomery Pittman and directed by Montgomery Pittman 
so written and directed by Montgomery Pittman, who made his debut as a director in the last season with Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. Clearly a very talented man, and we spoke in that last episode about how his life was very sadly cut short. The time, perhaps a hundred years from now, or sooner, or perhaps it's already happened two million years ago. The place, the signposts are in English, so that we may read them more easily. But the place is the Twilight Zone. I really like this Rod Serling opening narration, and I once read an interview, I think it was in Twilight Zone magazine, that If Memory Serves was with Richard Matheson, and he said that the writers had to write the Rod Serling narration. I'm sure that throughout the run, Rod Serling must have tweaked things here and there. I am curious about this one though, because it seems to include a lot of what makes Rod Serling's writing and delivery of these parts so unique. There's the poetic descriptions of things, he talks about the jungle and how it's starting to take over again. There's that familiar use of tricky wordplay like one insignificant corner patch in the crazy quilt of combat. Then he tells us that what we're about to witness could have taken place in the distant past or the far future or any time really so as Sailing and the Twilight Zone often do, they're not telling us exclusively about 50s or 60s life. This is a lesson for all time. So it is a classic Sailing narration, I feel, and that's why I'm interested to see whether it's something that he or Montgomery Pittman wrote, but unfortunately I can't find a definitive answer to that. But if it was Pittman, he did a pitch-perfect job. In an episode with not a great deal of trivia to draw on, not much dialogue to dissect, and a cast that consists of two people credited as just man and woman, this might be a short show, but as ever, I'll do my best. Before we even get to our two characters, the thing that strikes me first is just how great these sets look. 50s or 60s America gone to ruin, it's like a scene from the Fallout video game that uses a similar 50s aesthetic in a post-apocalyptic world. Now, Buck Houghton said in the Twilight Zone Companion, we shot it at the old Hal Roach studio when it was standing. It had weeds in the street, theater marquee letters hanging sideways, and we didn't have to do hardly a thing to it. At MGM, we'd have had to put up our own weeds and tear up our own windows and everything. This was an old backlot street that was about to be torn down, plowed under. It does look great, and our first character, the woman, wanders through the deserted street until she goes into a building. She discovers an unopened can, kills a giant spider on the counter with it, but we won't focus on that too long because we don't want to spoil the illusion. If you kind of catch it out of the corner of your eye, it's fine. If you look directly at it, you can kind of see it's not quite. But then our second character, the man walks in and she immediately attacks him. Now the man tries to fend her off it seems rather than actually fighting her but she's so relentless that he ends up having to knock her out. 
after he does that, he then goes to the can and opens it. Now, American listeners might have to help me out here because this is something I've never seen before. Can you actually buy chicken legs in a can over there? Now, I lived in the US for some time and it's not something I ever came across. I have searched for it online and the closest I can find is something called Sweet Sue's Whole Chicken in a Can which just looks dreadful, but I suppose if I'd just survived the war and I'd had nothing to eat, I might consider it, but looking at the pictures of it, I'm not too sure. But this is the future. Maybe science has discovered how to can chicken legs at that point. We can only hope. As the man walks around the room, he sees a glamour calendar with a woman in a bathing suit pictured on it. And this perhaps reminds him that the person on the floor is a woman, not just an enemy soldier, and with that comes potential for companionship, intimacy, and this is compounded after he sees a dress in the store window outside. Now he picks up a magazine at this point and it's showing a female soldier on the front with the headline, Today's Deb. So I wondered, is this slang for a female soldier? And from what I can gather, this may be a reference to Deborah Sampson, who was a woman born in 1760, and she disguised herself as a man to serve in the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War. Apparently she served for 17 months and used the name Robert Shirtliff before she was wounded in 1782 and was honourably discharged. So there is an acknowledgement here that a female soldier is still an unusual thing, and we'll come back to this topic again in a moment. When the man goes back into the abandoned building and revives the woman, just over nine minutes into the episode, we get our first piece of dialogue. Here, invader. Eat. Eat. The only reason I can see for our fighting is that your uniform is a different color than mine. Do you understand my language? I suppose not. Anyway, I repeat. There's no longer any reason for us to fight. There are no longer any armies. Only rags of various colors that were once uniforms. Like the two sets of rags we wear. There are no more boundaries, governments, or noble causes. Therefore, no reason to fight. With this first dialogue, the episode is pretty much showing its hand straight away, telling us what it's all about. When the man says, the only reason I can see for our fighting is that your uniform is a different colour than mine. Strip away politics, land boundaries, and anything else that says you must hate them, and essentially you're left with two people. Two people who, before all of this happened, probably had similar lives, jobs, relationships, the same concerns and worries. Have I got enough money to pay the bills this month? Have I got a roof over my head? those basics of survival they have in common. 
The Woman is played by Elizabeth Montgomery, who was pretty much destined for show business from birth. Both of her parents were in the business, and Elizabeth actually made her screen debut in her father's show, Robert Montgomery Presents, which was one of the many anthologies at the time, and Elizabeth appeared in about 30 episodes. It's one of those shows that has a ridiculous amount of episodes in it. In eight seasons, there were 321 episodes in total. And Elizabeth did the rounds on several anthologies and other TV shows after her debut in 1951, not really getting that one big part that she could stay in for a while. That came in 1964, when she took the part of Samantha Stevens in Bewitched, where she joined a couple of notable Twilight Zone stars, Dick York from The Purple Testament and Penny for Your Thoughts, and Agnes Moorhead from The Invaders, another silent episode. Sadly, Elizabeth died of cancer in 1995. In this episode, though, she is virtually unrecognisable from her classic 60s sitcom wife persona from Bewitched, where she was that smart, squeaky clean 60s housewife. So it's really nice to see her in a completely different type of role that she really embraces. In The Twilight Zone Companion, Montgomery Pittman's widow, Marita, says, Liz Montgomery at the time was so dedicated to her art. Most girls want to look really pretty for the camera. Monty had to fight her, really, because she wanted to make her eyes really black. She got too much makeup on. She was making herself look too haggard. In his review in The Twilight Zone Companion, one of the comments that Mark Zickery makes is that the characters are going against stereotype. The rough, muscular man is the pacifist, while the female is the more vicious of the two. Whether you agree or disagree with that is one thing, but what is clear is that the episode itself is maybe slightly progressive on the one hand showing a female soldier, on the other it's still beholden to some of the more backwards ideas of what is socially acceptable for that time. To put it bluntly, impractical as it is, the female soldier wears a skirt. Now you could say that true freedom is the right to choose what you wear and if a female soldier wants to wear a skirt, more power to her. But I don't think that's what this is. This is more that the Twilight Zone could be progressive, but at times it was only so progressive. Sometimes it could take two steps forward where everyone else was taking none, but there was still another ten steps to go, if you know what I mean. So... This is a time when women just didn't wear trousers on television. Now, I found an article by a writer called Liz O'Donnell online, and she makes a list that kind of puts this into context. Now, Catherine Hepburn was the first actress to wear pants in a major motion picture. And during World War I, as women went to work in factories, they started to wear pants, but it was still quite frowned upon. Marlena Dietrich furthered the course when she wore pants in the 1930 film Morocco. And then in World War II, there was that iconic symbol, Rosie the Riveter, to try and kind of get women to go to work. And she made pants more popular for women at that time. 
In the 1940s, Charlene Arthur, who was a country and western star, was the first female singer to wear pants while performing on stage in the 1940s. So by the 1950s, jeans and capris had become a more acceptable attire for women. But it seems that what was happening in the streets was still not quite there on the television. According to IMDb, The Dick Van Dyke Show started in 1961, so at around the same time as this episode. And apparently, Mary Tyler Moore, who starred in that show, created some controversy by wearing capri pants in the show. So, like I said, things were sort of going one way in the street, but television still was lagging behind. And it's crazy, really, because... Earlier on in this episode, there's been a woman in a swimsuit on a calendar, but but Elizabeth Montgomery can't wear pants. But scared or not, she does a really great job in this episode, and she seemed to hold it in quite high regard. In The Twilight Zone Companion, she said, You find yourself reacting to things you never reacted to before. You'll find it difficult not to exaggerate every look, every action, you think nobody will notice you unless you ham it up. You have to underplay every scene in a play of this type. But I must say, I never enjoyed doing a show as much as I did too. So that's nice to hear because, like I said, I think she does a great job in this. And she enjoyed it even though she only got to say one line. Procrastinate. At the beginning of the episode, Rod Serling says that this story could have been two million years ago or it could have been in the future, and I think in terms of its message, that's certainly true, but in the reality, it seems that this is all about America and Russia. So, apart from a laser gun later on, it's more than likely an alternate near future. The word Pokrasny is Russian for pretty, and the woman says it as she and the man look in a shop window at a dress, which he then bundles up and throws to her. I really enjoy this interaction between these two, the gradual breaking down of barriers which are down one moment, then back up the next. And the man seems to have let go of his programming or conditioning, but the woman isn't as far along in her journey and hers is always threatening to come back. And we see this when she steps into some kind of army recruitment office to change into that dress. In there, she's surrounded by the jingoistic imagery of war that's designed to appeal to people to come in and sign on the dotted line. It's the same kind of imagery you would see in the World Wars, and I think they are quite restrained in what they could have shown, because the posters tend to be more showing things like our tank corps or our soldiers. There is one poster where you see some enemy soldiers sort of stopped in their tracks by uh, soldiers with guns. And if we go back to, say, World War II, many of the posters were really demonizing the enemy. There was phrases like, hit Fritz where it hits, or I saw one that was kind of a road safety poster showing two cars crashing. Then there was this grotesque caricature image of a Japanese man and it said, Jappy so happy when this happens to you. So the episode only shows one side of it really, the kind of building up of their own side rather than the demonizing of the enemy. 
but it's enough to bring back that kind of programming that the woman has. And I don't mean that in a sense that she's been purposely brainwashed, but she's been living that life on her wits, and undoubtedly her country probably had similar imagery demonising the man side. So when the woman sees this, she's back into that mode, and as the man sits waiting for her, she shoots at him, but misses. The man's reaction to this is really well done. You know, he's obviously thought they've come to an understanding by this point, and he looks at her, raising his hand as if to say, why? Why have you just done that? And then he walks away. Here's one of the times when the Twilight Zone gives us an actor who really went on to big things. Charles Bronson, who plays the man, is that breed of actor that we rarely see these days. He was a minor when he was young. He served in World War II. He wasn't so much born as carved out of stone with the kind of life experiences that he had. And he wouldn't actually make his screen debut until he was almost 30. At this point in his career, he was doing the hard-working TV actor thing, going from show to show. Although he did do two seasons of a show called Man With Camera, where he played the lead role of Mike Kovac, who was a freelance photographer in New York City. But it was probably the 70s where he started to really break out in movies after a stint in Europe where he did some spaghetti westerns. He had that craggy face and really minimalist acting style, and he kind of found a niche as a movie tough guy in films like The Mechanic, and Mr. Majestic. A lot of the time he played the regular guy who gets pushed too far and ends up taking out a lot of bad guys, which of course landed him in Death Wish in 1974, which went on to be a five movie series. And he did kind of get pigeonholed into those kind of roles later in life when he might have been a bit old to be doing it anymore, but people seem to like him doing that thing. I've always liked Charles Bronson and I like seeing him dispatch bad guys but I also like this performance that he gives here he is very restrained and low-key the soldier who now wonders what the point of it all was and to be fair Bronson was always pretty much low-key and restrained whatever he's in but I do like what he does here when the woman shot at the man and he walked away her reaction after that is pretty instantaneous she looks at the deserted, crumbling city around her, and you can see that she's now thinking, well, what was the point of that? What have I got left now? At least there was potential there for companionship, and now she's just alone in this ruined world. Let's take a slight detour, only a slight one, because it's the same story, but just a different way of telling it. Now, I've said several times how much I enjoy Twilight Zone Radio, but I don't always bring it up because there's pretty much a Twilight Zone Radio version of every Twilight Zone episode. But I do bring it up if there's an interesting comparison to make, or if an episode has some quirk to it that's going to be difficult to translate to radio, like the one-woman show The Invaders, or this, the episode 2, where one of the characters only has one line. So you can imagine how tiresome a radio version could become if it was just the man not only just saying his lines but also describing everything the woman does. 
So they use a simple method, which you could say is inspired by Rod Serling's opening narration, where he says that the signs are in English so that we might more easily read them. What is it? I can't see it through the vines. Oh, a town. I hope they have some canned food. They better. I haven't eaten in... I can't remember how long. Make sure your weapon's in working order. The first rule for a soldier. The Twilight Zone is kind of acting as our universal translator, so when the man interacts with the woman, he speaks English, she speaks Russian, but then we get her internal thoughts in English. Find something? <gasps> ah! Where did he come from? My weapon! Ah! Go ahead, shoot. That's what you want. To tell the truth, I don't care. You got the guts to do it? I didn't think so. You don't want to fight any more than I do. Put the rifle down. So it's really nice to see and hear how these two mediums play to their strengths. The TV version being mostly silent and relying on the actor's physicality, and the radio version giving us the woman's perspective and words, giving us her journey that we get from the TV version, but not so explicitly. So the next time we see the man, he's taken off his uniform and is preparing to head off and seek his new life as a civilian, not a soldier, but then the woman comes back. Go away. Go away! You go take your war to more suitable companions. That's a civilian territory. The man renounces his uniform and, to his surprise, so has the woman. And in doing that, they've also renounced the war and everything that goes with it. They came to the town as soldiers, but walked away as civilians. And as time goes on, they'll become much more to each other. Now at the time, the Hollywood Reporter reviewed it and they said this was the first new one of the season starring only Charles Bronson and Liz Montgomery and two, a tale of the only two survivors in an atomic war. Bronson is saying one of us and Liz, mute but effective, as an enemy soldier. And they say it was interesting but not as powerful as other short cast zones, particularly the one where Robert Cummings carried the whole show solo. So pretty average review, I suppose, but I think this is actually a great start to season three. You know, the message of we're all just people is always going to have to be retold and retold because 
as history has shown us the lesson is never learned or if it is it never lasts it can be a tricky balancing act to get this type of story right you don't want it to be too preachy or obvious there has to be a story there that's worth the message and i think here there is i mean it is obvious the man's first lines tell us that but in doing it mostly in silence it allows that message to be delivered without forcing it down the audience's throat with long speeches about how we're all the same their actions are speaking louder than their words what has this war got them it's got them loneliness and a broken city the man calls the woman invader but we don't know the context of this whole war why were they invaded and was this as a result of some act by his country the point is it doesn't matter what matters is that stripped of uniform nations and built-up hatred preconceived ideas these are just two people who now have the same concerns that they had before the war how do i put a roof over my head how do i put food on the table it's probably going to be even harder now because of how their world appears to be but at least in themselves they're now reset because they didn't start this war wars are started in the boardroom but there aren't any more boardrooms so the man and the woman are probably more free now than they've ever been this has been a love story about two lonely people who found each other in the twilight zone At this point, I usually go to the listener emails, and I'll do that in a moment, but I just want to read one first, because it kind of leads to something that I'm working on as we speak. And it's from a friend of the show called Ben, and he says, Hi Tom, I want to congratulate you on wrapping up Season 2 of the Twilight Zone podcast, and the special episodes at the end of it, which had some fantastic interviews with interesting people. I eagerly await season three as I own the Blu-ray set for it and wish you all the best of luck in your research. Finally, Tom, before I go, it has crossed my mind many times that the podcast is free and you put a lot of effort in. So if you ever see an avenue where people like me who want to can send you a little PayPal donation or gift to keep you going whilst you delve into your research material, it would be a pleasure to do so. Thank you again for the hard work you put in, and I look forward to hearing what you think of too. The only friendship-creating post-apocalyptic film I think I've seen is A Boy and His Dog with Don Johnson, who lends his voice to the audio-drama version of 2. Now, I also had an email from a new friend of the show called Anthony Valentine, and he also spoke to me about the possibility of donating to the show in some way. So first of all, I want to say thank you to Ben and Anthony for their kind words and being so thoughtful to offer some kind of support to the Twilight Zone podcast. Now, it's only something that I've thought about quite recently because in the last year, the listenership of the Twilight Zone podcast has just sort of exploded, which is great, absolutely great. But with increased listenership comes increased costs. Now, first of all, I want to offer some reassurance. 
I'm not in any way going to put the Twilight Zone podcast behind some sort of paywall where you have to pay to listen to it. The Twilight Zone isn't my show to do that with and that was never the intention with this show. It was always about sharing the kind of love for Rod Serling's work. But I do have to admit, as that hosting bill comes in each month, it would be nice if the show did pay for itself. So the question is how to do that. Well, I myself contribute to some creators on the website Patreon. And that gives people who do podcasts, artwork, videos, that kind of thing, the ability to put something out there and their supporters who consume what they create anyway will throw them a few dollars to carry on doing what they're doing and often those people who contribute will get certain perks and so on. I think it's a great thing and it's something that, like I say, I contribute to other people on Patreon. I've set up a new Patreon page and the address is patreon.com slash Podcast. Now, Anthony and Vip were kind of saying, well, we want to support you anyway. We want to throw a couple of pounds, a couple of dollars your way to help support the show. It wasn't about getting extra stuff, but I do feel if I'm going to do a Patreon, I need to give something extra, you know, as a token of appreciation. So the question is what? What can I do that is extra to the Twilight Zone that one is not going to take up too much time to take me away from doing the Twilight Zone podcast, but is a little thank you to those people who do contribute. Well, what I'm going to do is a new show called The Fifth Dimension. And what that has developed from is a few conversations I've had with people recently who say they really enjoy the kind of readings of stories that I do and the radio shows that I've put on related to the Twilight Zone. So what The Fifth Dimension is, is a monthly show which I'm going to put out on the last day of each month, which will be me reading a science fiction story from around the same time as The Twilight Zone. So we're talking 50s and 60s sci-fi, kind of pulpy science fiction of robots and aliens and all that good stuff. Because it was quite a rich time for those type of stories, and I absolutely love to read them. So this new show is going to be that. It's going to be a monthly reading of me reading a science fiction story. Now, if the story comes in a bit short, because obviously they're all varying sort of degrees, then I will also supplement a an old-time kind of science fiction radio show in there as well. And I'll try and do that as a matter of course anyway, with the odd little bonus here and there. But to get this extra show, all you need to do is donate a dollar a month to the Twilight Zone podcast. And that's what it is. It's a it's a donation to support the show to keep it on the air with the escalating kind of hosting fees. So it's not a donation to buy this extra show. The extra show is a little thank you for your support. And it is only a dollar. The way Patreon works is people will offer sort of perk ladders. You donate a dollar, you get this. You donate five dollars, you get this and so on. I'm setting it at a dollar. If people want to donate $5, then they're allowed to do that too. But the perk kind of remains the same. If you donate at least a dollar or more, then you get the Fifth Dimension show. But I'm also going to put a few other extras in there. Things like 
unboxing videos of Twilight Zone products. I've completed a new one of those. It's going to go on the Patreon feed soon. So Patreon subscribers will get those kind of things as well. So rest assured, anything that's in the Twilight Zone podcast now is going to stay in the Twilight Zone podcast. If you're not able to donate, that's absolutely fine. You'll still get the Twilight Zone podcast. But if you are able to support the show with a dollar a month, then I would really appreciate it and you get this new show as well. Now, I'm under no illusions that podcasting is going to start paying for my living. I wish it would because I've got a ton of ideas, but I'm just going to start it out simple with this one thing. And if it starts to grow, then obviously it's going to be start to become more worth my while to focus more time on the podcasting side of things. And I've got another idea for a second level perk that I will introduce if the first one becomes successful and it's a similar kind of focusing on uh, a certain program stroke mythology kind of thing that I will delve into in a similar way to the Twilight Zone. So the first story in the fifth dimension that I'm going to read for you for Patreon subscribers is The Fly, the original science fiction story The Fly that was then adapted into the 50s movie and also the 1980s movie and it's a great little story and that will be there on the last day of this month okay so that's enough from me i'm not going to be plugging this every episode throughout it i will obviously mention it at the end but if you are able to join me on patreon then i really do appreciate it patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast and here's some words from listeners to the twilight zone podcast and submitted for your approval. Friend of the show Porsche sent some thoughts in and she sent a kind of long stream of consciousness email going through too. So I'll just pick out some points of what she said. So my thoughts on two, here it goes, pretty simple. According to his opening monologue, it could be anywhere, United States, Europe. Not everything is exclusive to the States or English speakers, for that matter. I thought he was asking the audience to consider this episode from the perspective of others, not just the viewpoint of Charles Bronson's character. The opening is pretty simple. It's post-apocalyptic, Nobody has walked the streets in years. It's desolate and isolated from humankind. So basic needs, food, shelter, water, these are what she's in search of. And she further goes through the plot and she says, her first reaction upon him entering the kitchen is to attack without thinking. That's an important point here. She reacts. He defends himself and knocks her out and then goes into that disgusting can of food. I don't know what it is, but it looked gross, which obviously showed how desperate they were for food, that's right. And then she says, upon nourishment, he looks at her, maybe a bit regretful of his actions, and leaves her something to eat. I think something interesting to note here is that oftentimes our actions can speak louder than our words. Maybe that's why there's not so much dialogue in this episode. Our actions or reactions are the dialogue in this story. Sometimes we are so focused on what we say to each other and what we plan on saying next, we miss the true meaning or nature of what is meant to be said, or also that we don't need to speak the same language to communicate. 
and she goes on to talk about how the gown is significant, it reminds them of who they were before the war started. So ultimately Portia says, so what is this episode about? At first I saw it as the relationship between Russia and the United States. This episode aired at the height of the Cold War. Can you stop a war with television? Maybe you can. You can certainly start one that way. I also thought maybe it could be interpreted as a war between the sexes, but I think the overall message is one of solidarity. We are not so different. It's what we're told to think that makes us believe that because once that was no longer there, the posters, etc., they came together as humans, not as American and Russian. Strive to see your commonalities. It will make you stronger. That's what I saw. Well, thank you, Portia. Portia's been a friend of the show for quite some time behind the scenes, so it's nice for you to, to get some thoughts on the show too, so thank you. Nick from Coventry sent me an email, and he said, Tom, I've just listened to the podcast on The Obsolete Man, as usual, it was informative and the perfect companion to the series which I'm watching in parallel with your podcasts. Although this episode has its flaws, I felt this was one of the strongest from this season. Sailing's bravery to deal with extremism in such a turbulent world that the early 60s in the US was never fails to astound me. The parallels with today's politics are painfully obvious and it is the human instinct that we fail time and time again to learn from our mistakes. I feel from listening to the lectures Sailing gave that I understand the man and his dreams more and the sometimes difficult positions he took. I've also had time to listen to The Forgotten Twilight Zone which had me intrigued and now desperate to listen to the audio books. The clips of the voices of Fritz Weaver, Roddy McDowell and Jean Marsh sounded perfect in these stories and the perfect listening material for me when I'm out walking the dog and it's chucking down with rain. Thanks for all the work you do bringing the Twilight Zone to life. You've made me think again and revisit a lot of these classic and sometimes not so classic stories and to look beyond the obvious and to revel in the trivia. Keep up the good work, Nick. Well, thank you, Nick. And, you know, I'm really glad you enjoyed the Forgotten Twilight Zone. That was a lot of work to put together, but I really felt like I wanted to honor those recordings because while there are people out there who do remember them, some of them have gone in touch with me, uh, unfortunately, you know, I think they should be somewhere for, for people to enjoy still, because they are very important. So thank you, I appreciate that. Jordan sent me a message and he says, Tom, wanted to drop your line telling you how much I enjoyed your episode on the Zone Audio Books from Harper, a product which I had no idea existed, but sounded fantastic. What a great find and a great presentation. It seems that just when you've reached the end of the Twilight Zone material, something else pops up. And isn't that wonderful? It certainly is. Uh, we've added the recordings to our bibliography, with proper credit to you, of course. Great work all round. It's really a shame those recordings are lost to time, and the last couple are very expensive on the secondary market. I really enjoyed listening to the tales about the production side of the project as well. Well, thanks for that, Jordan. And I wanted to read that because Jordan is one of the creators of a blog called The Twilight Zone Vortex, which is a really great place, to be honest. It, it's the Twilight Zone website that I always wish I could have made myself, but haven't been able to. And they do really in-depth reviews of each episode. Now, again, I like to keep fresh on episodes before 
I record them so I don't read anything about them beforehand, but I do, once I've done them, like to go and visit the Twilight Zone Vortex and read what those guys think of them. So check them out, the Twilight Zone Vortex. It's a it's a really cool blog and I enjoy it a lot. So thank you, Jordan. Friend of the show, Chris Reeve, who we've heard from before, says, Tom, great podcast as always. I wanted to share some thoughts regarding the season three opener too. First off, I have to say I love this episode. Like most of my other favorites, there's a great sense of human warmth despite the bleakest of environments. Similar to various other episodes, the spectre of Cold War era nuclear annihilation is ever present and forms an effective backdrop. I find the interplay between the two characters excellently acted and directed. The themes of individuality versus state, of violence versus peace, and of learning a new way of living after an extended period of fighting were well played. Nation states have gone and still go to great lengths to paint those we go to war with as the enemy, the other, something less than us, something subhuman. A glance at World War I propaganda or World War II American cartoons depicting the Japanese as more ape-like than human are just two sobering examples among many. And yet we are all human, cut from the same cloth, living under the same sky, surrounded by the same oceans, breathing the same air, sharing the same hopes, dreams and concerns. Rod Serling often used the Twilight Zone as a brush to paint such masterpieces with a strong moral backbone, as in this case. From an acting perspective, Elizabeth Montgomery does a terrific job in what initially appears to be a heartless Russian soldier, gradually opening up to her humanity, her emotion, her femininity, and the possibility and eventual embrace of a new way of life. The contrast with her character in the 1960s TV series Bewitched is of course ironic and striking. Of course, Charles Bronson is excellent and perhaps perfect as the grizzled war-weary man who's ready for a change, a revolution back to how things were before fighting became all there was. Managing to have retained enough of his humanity throughout this extended and evidently horrific conflict, he has some sort of path forward the plot is a little misogynistic or perhaps ethnocentric for the early 21st century, but I'm sure very progressive from a perspective of 1961. But this is a minor quibble and I find this episode among the best of the season. As with so many of the greats, the messages and themes are timely today and perhaps timeless generally as much of the West is increasingly aggressive towards Russia, China, Iran and other foes real or contrived. More locally, various Western ethnic groups appear particularly suspicious of minorities, including immigrants and any alternate religious or political philosophies. Being reminded of our joint humanity cannot happen enough in these troubled times. Regards, Chris. Great words there, Chris. Thank you. And what, what strikes me, I think, is that, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, you would look at this and think this is pure sailing because a Charles Beaumont story has a different vibe than a Rod Sailing story. A Richard Matheson story has a different vibe. Uh, but Montgomery Pittman seemed to be tapping into a very similar vein as Rod Sailing did and doing it really well. So I'm kind of looking forward to his next episodes to see what he comes up with. Okay, to close out, I'm gonna play a piece of audio feedback from a friend of the show, Jack Ward. And this is what he's got to say. 
Hi Tom, this is Jack Ward from Halifax, Nova Scotia. When I was quite young, I found The Twilight Zone and I don't remember exactly how I found it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure my parents introduced the show to me. I do remember that living in the country with only three stations I could pull in with our aerial meant the, the only way I could get The Twilight Zone was if I set my alarm clock on Friday night and woke up at two in the morning on Saturday. <laughs> now, certainly there are some days that I really couldn't get out of bed at 2 a.m. and I just rolled over. But more often than not, I would take my 12-year-old self down to the darkness of the living room, turn on that old black and white quietly, you know, I'd make myself a bunch of crackers with peanut butter and a big glass of milk, and I'd sit there and be mesmerized by the zone. Uh, sometimes they would play two shows back-to-back, which was awesome, and sometimes it would only be a single half-hour, but it, it was an, and is a treasured memory in my life. You know... Rod's mastery as a writer never left me. Without him knowing, he became uh, my spiritual mentor as a writer myself. You know, I created and host the longest-running showcase of weekly modern audio drama for almost 13 years now, seasoning the show with my own audio drama whenever I write and produce them. The easiest writing I have comes in the anthology form, and I blame Rod for that. I have pages of ideas for my anthology series. The deadline... Darker Musings and Wavefront. And, and I enjoy the twists I can put on the end of each of them. But Rod's not just at my elbow when I write. As an English teacher, I shamelessly introduce my students to the Twilight Zone, explaining to them that so many good stories had their roots in this iconic series. And I just showed um, Eye of the Beholder to my grade 9 students. And shortly I'll show them the monsters are due on Maple Street. I love standing in the front corner of the room when they see the bandages come off in Eye of the Beholder, by the way. The first look of shock at how beautiful Janice Tyler is makes them almost, like, angry that they've been duped. And then the turn of the doctor and needle, please, and the second shock. And to know that Rod's power still has the ability to grip them and that I'm creating a whole new generation of Twilight Zone fans, it just tickles me to no end. I just showed a most unusual camera to my grade 11 students as we talk about unreliable characters and especially the use of the MacGuffin. You know, I consider it a good, but not the most compelling. And still the students are amazed that they can enjoy something in black and white as much as they do. Uh, like all of us, they imagine the color after a while. Some of the other shows I've shared with my students are Shadowplay. Thank you so much for that episode, by the way. The Silence, that was an awesome episode you did too. Uh, Walking Distance, He's Alive, Changing of the Guard, Five Characters in Search of an Exit, The Big Tall Wish, Steel, The Living Doll, Terror at 20,000 Feet, The Invaders, Nervous Man in a $4 Room, An Occurrence at Owl Creek, of course, the Self-Improvement of Salvador Ross, The Long Morrow, The Obsolete Man, Time Enough at Last, and Number 12 Looks Just Like You. I gotta say, not I don't teach all of them in the same course or in the same year. Of course not, right? But I am amazed that, for example, Number 12 Looks Just Like You is so packed with story that it leaves these tidbits of a world that was built by Charles Beaumont from the story uh, The Beautiful People. That's his short story. I think he wrote it from... The students are so taken aback from the creepiness of Marilyn's final words. And the best thing of all, Val, is I look just like you. <sighs> anyway, one of my own fans hearing me pontificate about Rod Serling on my podcast and yet another episode passed me your show. And thank heavens he did. 
I'm absolutely a fan of the detail, thought, and love you put into your work. And I would like also to say that I do think you should keep putting in those extras. I've heard the interview with Mike Wallace before, but the speech he made at the campus was inspiring. I hadn't heard that. What an incredible writer. What an incredible legacy. Would that we could all leave that kind of legacy in our 50s for the world, right? Keep up the good work. And if you're interested in my original audio dramas, they can be found at evicuna.com. You know, Wavefront is my science fiction-based anthology, little like The Outer Limits, and The Deadline has more of a crime feel like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Darker Musings is strictly the strange and the fantastic. Feel free to have a listen. My weekly podcast is called The Sonic Society as well. You can find that on iTunes if you want. I'm happy to share with you all the worksheets I made for the students, if you're curious as well. In the meantime, thanks again. Thank you, Jack. You know, I do love getting audio feedback and adding new voices to the show. And Jack is a very prolific podcaster over the years. He sent me links to some of his work, and he's he's a really great kind of uh, producer of stories and so on. And if you go to sonicsociety.org, you can check out his work. And he very kindly put a link to the Twilight Zone podcast on there recently. So thank you, Jack. I appreciate you getting in touch. If you want to send some thoughts into the Twilight Zone podcast, then you can email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. We're on Facebook at facebook slash twilightzonepodcast. And as I said earlier, if you want to contribute to the show, then you can go to patreon slash twilightzonepodcast and a $1 donation each month will get you that extra show, The Fifth Dimension. So next time, we are looking at the episode, The Arrival, and I will speak to you then. And now, Mr. Serling. Literature is studded with stories of ghost ships and skeleton galleons. And next week on The Twilight Zone, we take the old tale of the Flying Dutchman and give it a coat of fresh paint. This time, the haunted ship is an aircraft. It lands in a typical busy airport and rolls up to the ramp. And it's at this point that you find yourselves on a passenger manifest of a flight that leads only to the Twilight Zone. It's called The Arrival. Sullivan, reminding you that the Colgate Palm Olive Company also brings you star-studded entertainment on our show on most of these same stations.